All right, I'm trying to record this because I have a number of people, I said this last time, but I messed it all up. Uh, there's a number of people who want to listen in on this, but they can't make the drive at night. It's, it's dark or it's too far or rain. Uh, and so I'm trying to record it. So that's why I have my computer here. Uh, but I want to briefly review what we talked about last time because I don't think it was all that clear. In fact, I think I got in my own way in a lot of ways. But if you think about how modern people think about history, we talked about this last time, they think of it as a line, that things are progressing and moving towards something. And what I, I mentioned was ancient people didn't think that way. That, that is a expressly Jewish and then Christian way of thinking about that. Ancient people thought in terms of cycles. In fact, you can still see that in Hinduism and Buddhism, in, in, in Asia and other places. That modern people think about history as going somewhere or as progressing towards something, and they will point to things like this as an example of how we could see technology progressing and our knowledge getting better and better, and whether we're actually better off with these things is a different question. But our understanding from you know, transistors to what we see happening, I don't know what's happening in a phone, but you, you see my point, right? That notion of progress and moving towards an end is expressly Christian, even as the modern age has rejected all that and said, we can have progress without this God. Good luck with that, right? The way the Bible thinks about history is similar, but slightly different too. We don't think it works like this. The Bible teaches it's more like this, more like a spiral of ups and downs. It's progressing. But the way you could tell it's progressing is not because necessarily our knowledge is getting better or our understanding of science is getting better, but how the story is working towards redemption. And so the way the Bible is structured is very different from the way modern people understand it. And so when we, when we come to reading the biblical text, we can miss the way it's written or why it's written the way it's written and certain details of why they are there. And we mentioned this last time, and this whole study will be getting into this in some respect. We mentioned how the Bible uh, tends to work in terms of what's called typology as well as symbolism. And we think of symbols as not real. Like if something's symbolic, it's, it's, it means something, but it's not really real. But the Bible doesn't think that way at all. So for example, think about Psalm 1 that we use for our call to worship. It related humans to trees or to plants, right? The good person, the blessed person, which is someone who walks with God, is like a tree planted by streams of living water. That tree then functions as a symbol, right? Look, this is what health and walking with God looks like, as opposed to chaff, you know, this very, image-based, and this is what's kind of missed because we're very audio-based, I guess you could say, uh, in, in modern culture, and we're starting to become more visual-based, much more. The ancient text is very visual-based, and so you are meant to imagine those, those two differences, those two different kinds of people, and you see that worked out all throughout Scripture, those kinds of imagery, but you also get these different types of people, a pattern that is repeated. And so it's not like numerology, right? Where it's like, oh, let's start counting up and see what happens. You know, the 24th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it's, no, it's not like that. Though numbers do show up, right? In patterns. We can start, what, what are some important numbers in the Bible? Just start throwing them out. 
Yep, keep going. Three, seven, what's the nine from? Okay. I was like, I haven't seen that pattern. All right. But we could think through this. One, three, five actually shows up a little bit. Two witnesses is all over, all over. In fact, you'll see God say the same thing to, to like, say, Abraham twice. And God said, there'll be a break. And God said, and he said the same thing. You're kind of like, is Abraham just dumb? No, it's two witnesses. God is the highest witness there is, so he's doing it twice. Seven is really important. Fourteen is important. Eight is important because that's seven plus one. Seven, whole, a whole week. The eighth is a new week. Fourteen is two weeks. You see that all over the feast day, by the way. 49 plus 1, 50, Jubilee is huge. That's all over Scripture, right? You get to uh, the book of Revelation, what number comes to mind? 666. But 7 is all over it too, as is 3, as is 144,000, which is 12 times 12 with zeros. See what I mean? Uh, Sorry, that's as far as I go with the math. But you see my point. These things are not random. It's not like you have to go hunting for like, what's the real? No, it's right there, right? So when we read about the story of Noah, for example, you know, and then we read about Jesus' baptism, we ought to be asking, what's up with that dove? That seems a little weird, right? You're meant to ask that question. You're meant to ask, why an olive branch? You know, growing up, if I had asked that answer, asked that question in Sunday school, they're like, well, that's what he had. That's what he found was an olive branch. Okay, why? Because that's what he had. Move along. What's the moral to the story? Right? We miss what it's driving towards. Uh, So as we go along in the book of Daniel, you're going to start to see some of these things pop. And it'll actually make that book much deeper and richer. And we're going to look at... Uh, the book of Jonah, because I think Jonah is a corollary to the book of Daniel. I think Jonah is for the northern kingdom of Israel who was shipped off to Assyria. And Daniel is the book, or is the prophet, really, for the people of Judah who were shipped off to Babylon some, you know, a couple hundred years later. But the other problems we face with reading the text uh, is that we, because of our, our modern ideas of how history works, we, we put those back on the text, and we think ancient people were stupid. Like, they, like the Bible can't be historically accurate. We, we, it doesn't really quite match with archaeology as we read it. Blah, 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 blah. So I meant to talk about this book last time. It's, okay, I'm a little nerdy. I kind of giggled as I read this book. Sorry, but I did. And it's called Inventing the Flat Earth. And what this scholar shows, he's a historian, he shows how supposed enlightened, brilliant people did not understand how to read ancient texts and didn't understand that ancient people actually knew the world is a sphere. They actually knew how things work because they could look up and say, well, that sun is awfully round. They knew how lunar cycles worked and, and solar cycles worked. They knew planetary cycles thousands and thousands of years ago. And the way they misread it was like, well, those dummies thought the world was flat. They did not. 
think that. If you ever want to pick this up, I read this like in a couple of days. It was, it was hilarious. And so what we do is we wind up importing our own values and own assumptions onto the text. When often the ancient text is describing reality from the sake of appearances. They're, they're not concerned with what the inside of a tree is. And it's not that they didn't cut them open and they didn't know. They asked the, per the question, what is the purpose of the tree in God's economy? What is this tree supposed to be teaching us? So think about it this way. Why is God so often compared to a rock or a mother hen or an eagle? God's creation, and the scripture says this all the time, speaks about him. That's Psalm 19. It speaks about his glory. It's always talking about him. So we're meant to go out and look at creation and see God in it in some way, right? When we come to the scripture, modern people often miss all these things, uh, in particular the way it talks about history, because it's not concerned with a dating system like we are. Its dating is a little bit different. And to add insult to injury, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before we actually start getting into Jonah, because it's going to be fun, for me anyway, uh, maybe not for you, uh, the way not only our modern Bibles are put together with chapters and verses can throw us off, the way devotions or devotional materials are often grouped together and composed takes away from the meaning of the text too. So for example, uh, I read a devotion this morning on Isaiah chapter 12, verses, I think it was the whole chapter, verses 1 through 6, which is a, a hymn, essentially. And you're supposed to read that passage and then the author writes a story. And the story uh, it was about this man and his kid was, I think, sledding or something like that and fell and he didn't get up fast. And like, what's wrong with him? And it turns out he broke his neck. And they take him to the hospital and they're like, holy cow, he broke his neck and, you know, what's going on? And will this kid ever walk again? And the story is, you know, the, get, the kid said, I know I'm going to walk again. I knew I was going to walk again because I feel God's presence with me. And that was the take on Isaiah 12. And the, Isaiah 12, I'm not going to flip it open and read it, but it's, it's, it's a hymn to God's faithfulness and how good he is. It's not about being with you when you break your neck. That's great. God is with you as, as you break your neck. That God could have been feeling God's presence and never walked again. Right? Isaiah 12, it says, And in that day... You will feel my presence. And that first line is really important. In that day comes after chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, where he says, listen, you've been unfaithful for hundreds of years. I am going to hammer you. You are going to be exiled into Babylon. Israel is getting ready to get pummeled by Assyria. You're not going to make it, except that I will be with you. And my promise to David will go forward. The Messiah will come. And though you die, you will live again. So you could see how, can you pull the meaning of God's with someone when they break their neck? Uh, well, yeah. But you could probably just and find a passage that does that. That's not what Isaiah is after. It's more so God is saying, I'm breaking your neck. You will die don't worry, you will be resurrected on the last day. Sorry. <laughs> right? So devotions even can pull us away from the meaning of the text because we'll pull just a little nugget 
for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Right? That sort of thing. And we miss it. So that takes us to Jonah. We don't want to be a nugget truth kind of people. We want to know the text. We want to see how deep it goes. And in fact, uh, my wife said to me today, she goes, you know, the problems with your sermon make me think, why should I read this? Because I'm missing so much. Right? Because you've read this, like, I never saw that. What's, what? I feel that. I feel that, that tension with the text. What you're intended to do is not read it once and close it and say, I got it. You're intended to go back and read Genesis 1 thousands of times. There's not a week I don't go back and read some aspect of Genesis 1 through 3 again. And there's almost every sermon I want to hop to it. That's because it's so important and so deep. And if you can get Genesis 1 through 3, you can get everything else that happens in Scripture. You could start, so if, for example, you could see, you know, Genesis 2, where there's all this mention of, like, precious stones and diamonds and down there in Havilah, that's where, like, well, why are they mentioning this? What's, what's going on with that? Well, as you go along, it tells you why it's there. And you start to see those precious stones in places like the ephod on the priest's clothing. And as you go along, you're supposed to read, like, I've heard that before. Where have I seen that before? Flip, 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 flip. You go back and you're reading. Is there a connection there? I don't know. Maybe. Let's keep reading. That's what you're intended to do. And that's why I call it Hebrew meditation literature. You're supposed to chew on it for a lifetime and grow in it. So the questions we had about Jonah, I threw out the hint beginning uh, that saying this. Jonah was a faithful prophet serving in Israel, that is, northern kingdom, uh, under wicked Jeroboam II. You might as well go ahead and open the book. Go ahead and open the Second Kings right now. We're going to go through Second Kings like, like we're nuts, all right? Second Kings 14.25 is where Jonah is mentioned. He gets one sentence, and then he gets a whole book that he wrote. And it just mentions that his word that he preached came true and that Israel's border uh, was enlarged. And so I, I put that out there. Let's, let's <laughs> true or false, was Joseph, excuse me, Jonah a faithful prophet? So you got a 50-50 on this. What do you think? We're going to answer all these questions out loud and then come back over the next two weeks and answer them again. All right, so true or false, faithful prophet. True, okay? Store that away. We're going to jump down. Where is it? Well, let's, we're going to see. We're going to see, all right? How about this was, where is that question? Well, it's nighttime, so I need my reading glasses. It's hurting. Uh, was Jonah, oh, there it is. By your reading of this book alone, or how you have typically understood the book of Jonah, would you say Jonah was a good or a bad prophet? Again, we got a 50-50 on this. Some daring soul, throw it out there. Bad prophet. There's a vote. We'll take that. Tuck that away. Say again. Ooh, bad. It's two strikes against Jonah. All right. Anybody think he's a good prophet? 
Okay. Jury split. All right, there we go. Why was Jonah sent to Nineveh? And why did he resist? They were wicked. So that's your answer for both. Why he was sent <laughs> and why he resisted. Okay, fair. They were wicked. And I, I've tried... He wanted punishment for Nineveh. Yep. They weren't worshiping God and they resisted because they didn't think what they were doing was right. Yep. Yeah. Yes. And we've, we've mentioned this before. That's exactly right. The Assyrian Empire, this is kind of missed on, on modern people because we, we have statues and things from like the Greek and the Persians and, you know, the Romans. And we think, well, look, this was the height of civilization. In a sense, it was as long as you weren't a slave right, which was three-fourths of at least the Roman population, uh, they were incredibly brutal, brutal, across the board. I mean, we won't go into details, but they were rough, to say the least, unbelievably brutal. They would not even, it wouldn't show up on TV anywhere here, how bad they were. So there is, yeah, they were wicked, to be sure, and there is a sense in which we don't want the wicked people to turn to God. That's absolutely right. So, okay, let's tuck that away. What is the significance of the storm? Because remember what happens. We, we, could walk, we will go through this book all the way. We, we could do it all tonight because it's like three pages long, right? He, he, he said, you go. God tells him to go. He says, uh-uh gets on a boat full of Gentiles, by the way, tries to go the opposite direction, what we, most scholars think is basically modern Spain, and he's supposed to be going, I'm doing it backwards, sorry. This is going up modern Spain, he's supposed to be going down this way. And as they're going along, a storm comes up and hits the boat, and they're rowing for their lives. What do you think the significance of the storm is? Yes, okay. So that's, that's God showing up. That's God showing up. Any other takes on that? That's a good one. I like that. Any other takes on that? Could be his punishment. It's very related. Yes, so let's ask that question. When Jesus and his disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and a storm showed up, was that God's punishment? There's a trial. What's the difference? Could be. A trial could be like that. Could be. Test of faithfulness. All these things are, are related. So let's think about that. You're right. There are storms that show up in the New Testament, right? Uh, Jesus himself is found in a deep sleep on a boat. That seems relevant somehow. Hmm. So let's ask the question, what's the big deal about the deep sleep? And, and let's, let's be clear. When it says deep sleep, it doesn't mean Sunday afternoon, 
post-carb lunch nap where dad is snoring on the couch with NFL football on or something. This is deep sleep as in unto death is what the Hebrew kind of has in mind there. What do you think that's about? Ooh, could be. That's a possible, uh, that's a possible candidate. Let's tuck that away too, right? So this is, this is an unusual detail that, let's think about children's Sunday school. You know, Jonah was asleep in the boat. How crazy is that? How could he sleep through that storm? Well, the answer, I'll go ahead and put up front, this was not a natural sleep. This was different. Now, you can't necessarily get that unless you're looking at the Hebrew text. But this is not the first time in the Old Testament where someone falls into a deep sleep. In fact, it happens in Genesis chapter 2. But that's not the only place either. It happens in Genesis 15 with Abraham. It happens, is it Judges 4 or 5? Uh, my chapter and verse are terrible, but it's Sisera. Tent peg guy, remember that guy? Gets nailed right in the temple. This happens more than a few times. So what's the significance of that? All right, tuck that away. Let's think about that. So we, we don't necessarily have an answer on that. That's a, uh, we'll wait and see. Um, what is the significance of the big fish swallowing Jonah? Is that fictional? And if not, why does God do this? Okay, let's walk through that a little bit. Uh, Jonah threw himself overboard. The storm stops, by the way, instantly. And then he's swallowed by something big. We don't, whale, fish, who knows? People have tried to explain this by saying, well, for him to survive, it had to be a really big animal. Does it? Last time I checked, coffins are pretty tight. Right? And it's, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call into question one of your assumptions that God doesn't want him to suffer. I think God does want him to suffer. And I think three days and that, listen, when the covers in bed get too tight around me, I start having nightmares about, that I'm being buried alive or I'm one of those videos where the guy goes through the, the hole in the rock like, watch this. And I'm like, eh, right? He, three days. Right? Yes. Though arguably tighter, right? So he is suffering. And from the depths of that pit, so to speak, he prays. Is there anywhere else in the Bible where we see someone thrown into a pit, being left for dead? Say again? Yes, that happens with Daniel. Hmm. 
Is there anywhere in Genesis where that happens? Joseph. That happens with Joseph. Is there anywhere in the New Testament where that sort of thing happens? This is the Sunday school answer, y'all. Jesus, right? Right? All right, let's keep going. That, the, the whale one is, is pretty big. You, you ought to, I think most people are like, that's, a, that's resurrection. I get that. Right? Especially it's a messy resurrection because he's vomited out, right? So uh, we could ask the question, what does Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 tell us about him? We're not going to walk through it right now. Go read it this week if you haven't. That reads like he knows the Psalms really well. Really well. Okay? We'll skip that one for now. Why are both humans and animals engaged in fasting and putting on sackcloth cloth and ashes? Now think about that. These people put sackcloth on cattle, right, and covered them in ashes. I, I can only imagine what the bulls were doing. Like, what are you doing, right? They do that. What's the significance of that? And why is God concerned with animals at the end of the book? Can you think of another place in Scripture where God seems concerned about the welfare of animals? Oh, yeah, Balaam. That's right. Noah's Ark, that's one too. Yeah, Balaam, that's a crazy one. And the best is when the donkey says to Balaam, like, why are you hitting me? And he's like, I don't know. You know, here we are. Uh, so that's a great question that we'll get to that's important. And we usually just kind of, well, you know, cows, I guess. Uh, what does this mean from Matthew 12? Then some of the scribes, the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, that is, perform something. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See how he talks about that? We know he was put in a, a tomb that was above ground, but he's speaking in, in terms of being in a pit. And if you're, if you're in the, the belly of a, a whale or whatever it is, that feels like you are in the belly of the earth or the heart of the earth. So we'll skip that. Why does God, this is the one nobody ever answers, and they just go, I don't know. Why does God raise up a plant, excuse me, I spit, in chapter 4 and then quickly cause it to die? Remember, this is chapter 4 where God is like, You're just jumping to the end, buddy. I, I, but I appreciate that. that that's, let's tuck that away. That's not a bad... I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. That's one, one way of reading it. But could be that. I like that. God loves to show that. What? Power of creation is one. Yes. Possibly that, too. Because remember, it's... Chapter 4, chapter 4 says, you know, he's, he's angry, like, and he's gone out and he's like, he's going to kill these people. I know it. that repentance is not real. They're going to strike him down. And so he sits there and God raises up a plant over him and he likes it, he likes the shade. It's great. And then God causes a worm, right, to come and the plant withers and dies and the scorching east wind comes and he gets to the point where he's actually close to death. 
And, and that's when God confronts him again. He says, are you angry enough? He goes, angry enough to die. So let's ask that question. Do we see anywhere else in Scripture where God raises up a plant of some kind that gives shade to his people? You can't think about that literally like, well, I guess Abraham had some oaks around him or something. It's a symbol, right? Just like a man blesses the man who is like a tree. Where do you see those sorts of things happening? Here's a hint. <clears throat> Book of Daniel. Say again. Nebuchadnezzar. To a great... Yeah. He's likened to a great tree whose shade will cover all of creation. True. That's a great connection. Right? So, but we have to ask, is this, is this then about Babylon? Because he's gone to Assyria. But the tree dies. So what's that about? So all those questions should be in your mind, like, what is going on? So, is this, so let me ask this question. Is the meaning of the book of Daniel, you should love Gentiles, and you should do mission work to Gentiles? Is that the meaning of the book of Daniel? Uh, excuse me, of Jonah. Correct. That is not the answer. Could that be an implication? Yes. Yeah, sure. Of course. God is for the Gentiles. That's all of the Old Testament. But is that the meaning? I don't think so. I want to read two passages from Deuteronomy, and then your assignment for next time, because time's getting on, because I dilly-dallied. Go read the book of Joshua, and then I want you to read the book of 2 Kings. You can actually start in the middle of 1 Kings and keep going. Just read both books. You got time, right? No, not Joshua. Read Jonah. Well, you can read Joshua too. Listen, what, what my mind, not what I say. Sorry. I'm going to try and be as clear as I can. This is not going to... We're almost done, I promise. Uh, read Jonah. Read it slowly. Read from the middle of 1 Kings where the kingdom splits after Solomon with Rehoboam and then keep going. Uh, if you were to read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, it, it follows in particular Judah. And the reason it follows Judah is because of the line of David, because that's where the hope is. That's where the promised seed is going to come from. First, middle of 1st Kings through 2nd Kings is where you get Elijah, you get Elisha, and you, you get the pattern of the kings. And what happens in Israel? And here's a hint. Ain't none of it good, right? So follow that line. You're going to come across Jonah, and you're going to come across the Assyrian Empire. And just read the description of what happens. And pay attention that the Assyrians do not wipe out the people. That's important because typically they do. But they don't in this case. Then read the book of Jonah again. But here's Deuteronomy chapter, I'm going to read two, just write this down for your notes, if you want to go read it. 
You go read the book of Deuteronomy 2. I mean, let's go crazy, right? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Remember, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law to the generation that's getting ready to take the promised land. This is, this is Moses speaking. He says, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, a form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Thank you, sermon, right? When you father children and children's children, so we're talking generationally here, and have grown old in the land, this is in promised land, if you act corruptly, by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, which was a promise, right? That's honor your father and mother, right? Uh, But will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, that's the nations around, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. So I'll just stop right there. It keeps going in that vein. This is before they ever take the land. And he's telling them, when you rebel to the third and the fourth generation, having worshipped other gods or tried to make me into an image of your likeness. Remember what we talked about with Jeroboam? Let's go read that passage on Jeroboam and what's he do? First thing he does is set up two golden calves and says, here's Yahweh. He says, when you do this, I am going to send you out from the land. I will scatter you. And when you are in that land, you will eventually remember me, and I will bring you home. All right? So that's before they've ever taken the land that he says that. Then in Deuteronomy 32, this is much more poetic, and I'll stop with this. But... Jesharon, which is a nickname from God to Israel, which means upright one, grew fat and and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. All right, so this this is a guy who's not working, right? He's he's taking what God has given and it's not good. And what he has in mind here, what he's getting ready to describe, is actually close to to what Sally Rose mentioned with, with Balaam. It's coming up on the Baal worship at Beor. Uh, Peor, excuse me. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. See how these things work, that these symbols point to God. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face 
uh, from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, with those two things in mind, that God would scatter his people for prolonged rebellion against him, and that in turn, he will make another people who is not his people, his people, and in turn make Israel jealous, go read the book of Jonah. Start in 1 Kings, midway through, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and start reading and see what the history of the people, how it goes. Then ask the question, why did Jonah resist going to Nineveh? With Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 32 as the backdrop. And let's see if we come to the same conclusions. And if you really want to, if you want to really nerd out, Go read Romans 9 through 11 and see what, ask the question, why does Paul talk about Israel like he does? All right, any questions or concerns or snide remarks? We're over to that too. That's fine. Maybe three weeks. If you can, get, if you can understand Jonah and see how that works, Daniel becomes a whole lot easier. Especially when we start talking about why a lion's den, that seems pretty bizarre. Or what's up with all this talk about trees? Or what's up with all these beasts? This is bizarre, right? They'll start to make more sense. Other questions? All right, well, let me pray. Uh, and if, as questions arise, if you're anything like me, they tend to come like 15 to 20 minutes late. Shoot me a text or shoot me an email. I'm happy to answer them. Right? Or if you want to start with questions right from the beginning, we can. I don't care. But let me pray for us and we'll take off. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is not random, which you wrote through your prophets, that you inspired, that you directed all of history to come to your son, to be fulfilled in him. And we live 2,000 years after him as the benefit we get to see how you have been working all this time and how you are still working in this world today. I thank you for everyone here. I pray your blessings on all of us as we go out to our places of our calling and our work, that we might be trees planted in streams that would bear fruit for the sake of those around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.